thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, and Welcome back to the People's History of the Old Republic, episode 9.3, The Decline and Fall of the Old Republic. Last time, we introduced Darth Bane and his rule of two and covered the timeline up to the Sixth Battle of Rusan. This time, the Sith are destroyed, Darth Bane survives, and we witness the death of the Old Republic. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in legends. The New Sith Wars Part 3, The Final Days of the Old Republic. This is about 1,000 BBY. When we left the narrative, it was hours before the Sixth Battle of Rusan was set to begin. But before we get back to that, we have three stories to cover that occur during the events of Darth Bane, Path of Destruction, which we're still in. These stories have little context and don't tie into the wider actions of the Light and Darkness War, but they are standalone stories in the Old Republic era, and we haven't missed one of those yet, so why start now? The first one is The Apprentice. It's a one-shot comic written by Mike Denning and published in 2003. It was originally published as part of Star Wars Tales 17, so it's a six-page one-shot comic. It takes place on an unknown world, circa 1000 BBY. A Sith Lord named Finn and his apprentice Marka are returning to their ship after blowing up a building. On the way, they are stopped by a Toydarian merchant named Lod, offering a blue-haired human slave girl for sale. When the slave refuses to obey Lod's order, he slaps her, and Marka intervenes to stop the attack. Lod then told Finn to keep his slave, meaning Marka, in check, which enraged Marka, who ignited his lightsaber and killed the Toydarian. The slave girl asks to go with them, but Finn says he has no need for a slave. As they depart, Finn chides Marka for showing a Jedi trait like compassion and orders his apprentice to go back and kill the slave girl. Moments later, Marka returns with the girl as he was unable to kill her. Finn once again says he has no need for a slave, and the girl promptly force pushes Marka off the building, killing him. Now in need of an apprentice, Finn welcomed the girl aboard his ship as his new Sith apprentice. All for You, one-shot comic written by Adam Gallardo, published in 2003. Like The Apprentice, All for You is a one-shot comic originally published in Star Wars Tales 17. It is 10 pages long and takes place on the planet Syrian, Syrian, I don't know, circa 1000 BBY. An unnamed Jedi crashes in a field on the world of Syrian. Just before dying, he gives a four-sided holocron to some farmers, claiming it is a type of map. In a small settlement, a few of the farmers debate whether to keep the holocron or forget it ever existed. A teenager from the settlement named Tenno wants to get away from the planet and his abusive father and convinces his friends to steal the holocron to the, return it to the Sith for a reward. When the teens make it to the meeting, a fight breaks out over what to do with the holocron and Tenno's father is killed. The meeting is broken up by the arrival of an unknown Sith Lord. Tenno gives the Sith holocron and asks for a reward, at which point the Sith ignites his lightsaber and kills all of Tenno's friends. He did this to prove the power of the Sith. 
Before departing, the Sith Lord leaves Tenno in the care of the farmers and tells them to keep the teenagers safe or face the wrath of the Sith. So it seems Tenno did get a reward after all. Darkness Shared. It's a short story written by Bill Slavik and published in 2001. Darkness Shared was originally published in Star Wars Gamer Number no. 5, a short-lived focused on Star Wars tabletop RPGs, video games, and more. Darkness Shared takes place in a thousand BBY, roughly six months before Seventh Rusan. Jedi Master Kryan Maru and her Rodian Padawan Dree Vandap arrive above Baloa searching for a Sith Lord and remember and a member of the Brotherhood of Darkness named Kaux Kroll. Just after arrival, their starship is ambushed by Kroll, but both craft are damaged in the attack and crash land on the planet below. Kroll, a notorious Jedi hunter, escaped his downed ship and went to find the Jedi who were salvaging their ship. When Kroll arrived, Dree Vandep held him off long enough for Master Maru to get a speeder working and run the Sith Lord over with it. Though Kroll did damage the speeder with his lightsaber before passing out. The Jedi fled as far as they could, rationing food and water to survive after their speeder died. Kauk's Kroll tracked them for two days until finding the Jedi amongst a rocky outcropping near a bend in the river. Maru was on guard duty and began dueling Kroll as soon as he arrived, but her Padawan woke up and went to join the fight alongside her master. Knowing how close the master and apprentice were to one another, Kroll leapt behind Drew Vandap and stabbed her through the back, killing her instantly. The death of her Padawan sent Master Maru into a rage, and she tapped into the dark side, intending to take revenge on Kroll. The two dueled for hours until, both tired and ragged, they landed simultaneous killing blows and fell into the river together. Sometime later, Jedi Knight Salen Toth picked up the Jedi Distress Beacon on Balawa and landed, finding the body of Dree Vandap. But the bodies of Maru and Kroll were never found. Instead, Salantoth felt an intense darkness in the area that had turned the bend in the river into a fetid swamp. Toth took the young Padawan's body back to his ship and deemed the case closed. Setting the stage for 6th and 7th Rusan. Now that we've covered those three stories, we can move back into Darth Bane Path of Destruction and get ready for the 6th and 7th Battles of Rusan. Even though 7th Rusan is technically the last battle of the Old Republic, it's not really a battle, more like mop-up duty and a brief confrontation. 6th Rusan, on the other hand, is an actual battle on ground and in space that happens the night before 7th Rusan. Although they are separate battles, it makes more sense to discuss them together in the narrative since they're only separated by a few short hours and most of the action occurs in six, during Six Rusan. Also because Seventh Rusan is really, really anticlimactic. Together, Six and Seventh Rusan mark the final battles of the decade-long Light and Darkness War and the millennia-long New Sith Wars. They also mark the ostensible destruction of the Sith and serve as the last stand of the Old Republic. So they're kind of a big deal. As we've done so often over the course of the narrative, we're going to get ready for these monumental battles by setting the stage for all our major players. Later in the episode, after the battles, we will cover the Rusan Reformations and Darth Bane's discovery of, his, of the Sith Apprentice he required to enact his Rule of Two.
When we left off last episode, the Army of Light seemed to be in control. After losing first and second Rusan, Lord Hoth rallied his troops and won the next three battles, third through fifth Rusan. The Brotherhood of Darkness's vaunted personnel advantage that Lord Khan had long used to win close battles was now non-existent. The Army of Light also benefited from turmoil in the Sith ranks as Darth Bane, Lord Kopex, and even Githany started to question Khan's fitness to rule. Not to mention that Valentine Farfala had successfully rallied the 300 holdout Jedi, more troops and ships, and then smashed the forces of King Lazar, a Jedi who had been recently defected to the Brotherhood on the way back to Rusan. But the Army of Light's position was far more tenuous than it might appear at first glance. Yes, Hoth and his troops had won four consecutive victories on Rusan, but the situation on the ground was rapidly deteriorating. Hoth was reduced to recruiting four sensitive children as young as ten into his army, and the decision weighed heavily on the Jedi Master. Meanwhile, much of the Army of Light had been on Rusan since early 1001 and were tired, underfed, and undersupplied. Yes, there was infighting in the upper echelons of the Brotherhood, and yes, the Sith numerical advantage had largely been erased, but none of that mattered as long as the Sith fleet in orbit kept Rusan blockaded. All the good news and momentum in the universe don't amount to shit when your entire army is stuck on a planet with no way to escape and no way to get resupplied. With the blockade in place, Farfalla's reinforcements will be unable to reach Rusan, and the Army of Light will be overwhelmed and destroyed. The Brotherhood, for their part, are in a militarily advantageous position, but instability at the top threatens to shatter the Sith at any point. In space, the fleet is commanded by Admiral Adriana Nyrus, and her blockade is impenetrable. The The Army of Light fleet can't break the Sith blockade. There will be no blockade running, no sneaking behind the blockade and stolen ships, nothing of the sort. As long as the Sith fleet stays in position, the Brotherhood can literally starve the Army of Light out if they so choose. In contrast to Admiral Nyrus's impeccable leadership in space, things on the ground are a mess for Lord Khan. By the day before Six Rasan, the leader of the Brotherhood has finally reached the end of his rope. Khan was exhausted from a decade of war, the mental strain of constantly using battle, battle meditation, and trying to keep the Sith Lords in line. Bane uh, has taken the Darth title in spite of Khan's prohibition and openly plots against the Brotherhood. Lord Kopex, Khan's top lieutenant, has become secretly disillusioned with the Brotherhood and seems to have uh, resigned himself to his fate, however it comes. Kasim, the Sith Blade Master and weapons expert, lays dead at the hands of Bane. Then there's Githany, who is a worshipper of Khan's cult's personality, but has also recently started to doubt Khan's abilities. Basically, the walls are closing in for Khan, and he's also descending into madness, and he's ready to do literally anything to end the Light and Darkness War. Lord Khan will even a lot. Lord Khan will even ally with Darth Bane again, despite well, pretty much everything. Bane, God, let me try that again. Lord Khan will even ally. I can't even, god damn it. Lord Khan will even ally with Darth Bane again, despite, well, pretty much everything Bane has done for the past year. There we go, four tries, and I got it. 
This includes taking Bane's suggestion for using a thought bomb, which will be the death of them all. So Lord Khan isn't in a good place, but he's still going to come as close as any Sith ever has to destroying the Jedi, at least until Sidious comes along. As for the Jedi Order, it has been it has largely been subsumed into the Army of Light, except for a few intransigent holdouts and politicians still running the Old Republic. That only leaves our dear, sweet Old Republic, which is just dying. One way or the other, the Republic will die. It's just a question of who decides on its successor. A children's crusade. Now that we've set the stage, there's only one thing left to do before 6th and 7th Rusan commence. Introduce the child soldiers. And we don't mean that ironically. These are actual Force-sensitive children who are taken to serve as soldiers and reinforce the Army of Light. Lord Hoth rationalized the decision by saying it was better for the children to fight for the Light than be conscripted into the Sith but it's still taking child soldiers for your holy war. Our best look at Lord Hoth's Children's Crusade comes from 2001 six-issue comic series, Jedi vs. Sith, written by Darko Makan. Now, Jedi vs. Sith occupies an especially odd place in the Legends continuity, as it is the only visual portrayal of the 6th and 7th Battles of Rusan, period, but was also explicitly superseded and adapted by Drew Carpatian's Darth Bane trilogy. So it's simultaneously our only look at one of the top 10 most important battles in the Legends continuity, while also being intentionally and partially contradicted by a later work. As such, we will use it to supplement what we know from Path of Destruction, but defer to the novel where they disagree. In Jedi vs. Sith, we find the Midrim world of Samovrit sometime after 5th Rusan. There, Jedi scout Tor Snappet has located the three possible recruits for Lord Hoth's Army of Light, a trio of four sensitive human cousins named Tomcat, Bug, and Rain. Due to a local superstition, people on Samovrit went by nicknames, usually keeping their given name a secret. Tomcat, who was 13, and Bug, who was about the same age, were immediately approved by Snappet because both exhibited some control over the Force, levitating small objects. Rain, who was just 10, didn't want to be left behind and watch her cousins escape their swampy backwater planet without her. Snappet initially refused the girl because Rain couldn't figure out how to use the Force just yet, even if she could feel the Force. As Tor Snappet turned to leave with the two older boys, Rain began sobbing and tried once more, this time moving a pebble with the force, or so it appeared to Snappet. In reality, Tomcat had helped Rain a little through the force because they were best friends and wanted to go on an adventure together. They thought of going to war as an adventure because they were just kids, and that's what kids do. The group arrived on Rusan shortly before the planet was blockaded, but their ship was attacked by the Sith. The ship took damage and lost altitude, causing rain to fall from the ship, after which she was presumed dead. Tor, Snappet, Bug, and Tomcat set out on foot, pursued by the members of the Brotherhood. Coming to a chasm with a rickety bridge, Tor sent the boys across, then cut the bridge once they made it. The Sith caught up with the aged Jedi scout, and he was killed and thrown down into the chasm. 
Tomcat, entranced by the idea of a lightsaber, went to retrieve Snappets but found the old man clinging to life. Snappet asked Tomcat to leave the lightsaber, but the boy took it and climbed out of the ravine. Tomcat then told Bug that Snappet had given him the lightsaber, and the two boys made off for the Army of Lights encampment. After arriving, Tomcat was disillusioned by the ragged forces remaining under Hoth's command and with the brutal realities of war, and he started to doubt the Army of Light's cause. He envisioned chivalrous knights fighting off monsters, not this. Meanwhile, Rain had survived her fall and befriended a bouncer named La, and we will catch up with all the kids shortly. The plan. With all that out of the way... We can finally start the Sixth Battle of Rusan. In space, Admiral Nyrus's blockade of the planet is impenetrable, which means Jedi Master Farfalla's reinforcements can't reach the Army of Light on the surface. On Rusan, the Army of Light is barely holding it together, and the reality of their imminent demise is starting to weigh heavily on everyone. They are completely cut off with little remaining in the ways of supplies as hunger and disease begin to set in. The Army of Light's days were numbered, and worse yet, they knew it. Victory appears to be within the grasp of the Brotherhood of Darkness, but Lord Khan is slipping into madness and his general scheme behind his back. In desperation, Khan agrees to Darth Bane's suggestion that the Sith join together in a ritual to create a massive force storm and annihilate the Army of Light. At nightfall, the Brotherhood will channel their dark side power through Bane, essentially using him as a focus to create the Force Storm. This is where we left the narrative off at the end of the last episode, with the Sixth Battle of Rusan beginning at sundown and the Seventh Battle happening the next day. I know, you're probably wondering aloud, why in the hell would Khan agree to anything with Bane, and conversely, why would Bane help Khan or the Brotherhood at all? For Lord Khan, the answer is simple. He's losing touch with reality and sliding further into madness with every passing moment. Khan just wants to end the war and, as they say, any port in a storm. Bane's motivation here is less clear. While on Rakata Prime, Bane decided on the necessity of the rule of two and destroying the Brotherhood, then sent Khan the schematics for the Thought Bomb in the guise of a peace offering. So far, so good. He's going back to Rusan to undermine the Sith efforts and ensure the Brotherhood's downfall. So why would Bane agree to the Force Storm ritual in the first place when it will clearly eradicate the Jedi? Killing the Army of Light on Rusan would make Khan the de facto ruler of the galaxy, and it's a whole hell of a lot harder to kill a leader after they're entrenched in power. The best answer is that Bane was using himself as the focal point for the ritual to siphon power from the others while weakening the Jedi. Unfortunately, the best answer isn't always a good answer. So it begins. As the sun set on Rusan, the strongest members of the Brotherhood gathered into a large circle, held hands, focused their dark side energy through Bane, and spoke the words to create the Force Storm. Suddenly, a mass of clouds formed and began consuming the surface of the planet as it moved slowly toward the Army of Light. The Sixth Battle of Rusan had begun. The Force Storm shot Force Lightning in all directions, scorching the Earth and setting fires that would burn down entire forests. At the same time as the ritual, the Brotherhood's conventional military forces launched, launched coordinated attacks 
on the Army of Light's positions. The Jedi were largely caught unaware, and in the initial fighting, Jedi Master Kernikar was killed by Brotherhood forces. Almost as soon as they attacked, the Brotherhood forces withdrew as the Force Storm approached. When Lord Hoth learned of Kernikar's death, he despaired for the loss of his closest friend and the only person who really held Hoth together for the past two to three years. The weight of the universe and the insurmountable odds facing the Army of Light, the army he had built a day. God. The weight of the universe and the insurmountable odds facing the Army of Light, the army he had built a decade earlier, came crashing down on Hoth's shoulders. In his grief and in the face of harsh reality, Hoth began looking for someone to blame, and he set his sights squarely on Valentine Farfalla, who had not yet returned with the promised reinforcements. Of more immediate concern, however, was the massive force storm cutting a miles-wide swath of destruction and about to hit the Army of Light's camp. The Force Storm was working, the Army of Light had no means of escape, and it appeared as though the Sixth Battle of Rusan would remain the end of the Jedi. Then the Brotherhood did something stupid, and the Force Storm dissipated. Up where the Sith had been meditating, they broke the ritual, mounted their speeders, they broke the ritual and mounted their speeders, wanting to wipe out the Jedi by their own hands. Though they also suspected Bane was siphoning power from them through the ritual, which he was, so that may have been the real reason they stopped the meditation. Regardless, members of the Brotherhood mounted their speeders and prepared to finish the Jedi off personally. Betrayal. For some reason, Darth Bane attempted to stop the Brotherhood from abandoning the ritual. Again, the Force Storm would have almost certainly wiped out more than 90% of the Army of Light, essentially leaving Khan in control of the galaxy and making Bane's job of destroying the Brotherhood much harder. So it makes little sense for Bane to start the ritual in the first place, and it makes even less sense for him to try and stop the Brotherhood from fighting hand-to-hand. Unless, of course, he just wanted to siphon off more of their power through the ritual and knew up front that they would do something stupid like this and he was only feigning protest. And again, the reasoning behind all Bane's actions from the time he arrived back on Rusan is hazy at best. Ostensibly, it's all about destroying the Brotherhood, but how starting the Force Storm ritual helped him with that is anyone's guess. We'll chalk it up to wanting to sow chaos and siphon energy from the members of the Brotherhood and move on. As the Brotherhood departed, Githany tried to claim this way was more fun, but it was clear she knew that breaking the ritual was a bad decision by Khan. Darth Bane had briefly considered taking Githany as his Sith apprentice, but he saw that she was far too beholden to Khan to ever leave the Brotherhood. The last Sith on a speeder to leave was Lord Kopex, who had accepted the folly of Khan's decision and was prepared to meet his end. Kopex told Bane that the Brotherhood members would never accept his loyalty to the dark side above loyalty to the Brotherhood itself. Kopex then left to face the Jedi one last time. Finally, Bane did the smart thing and returned to the Sith compound where he found Cordris. The Sith headmaster offered to serve Bane, but Cordris was much more interested in taking over the Brotherhood than destroying it. Realizing that Cordris was too loyal to the Brotherhood to be a suitable apprentice, Bane began force-choking Cordris and killed the old Sith where he sat. With that done, the only thing left for Bane to do was betray the Brotherhood to their doom. From the abandoned camp, 
Darth Bane sent a comm to Admiral Nairas, ordering her to engage with Farfalla and the remaining Army of Light fleet above Rusan, knowing this would allow reinforcements to land. The Charge of the Light Brigade When the Sith fleet began to move away from Rusan, Valentin Farfalla saw his chance. He left command of the Army of Light's fleet to an admiral and loaded his gold-plated flagship, the Fairwind, with as many warriors and supplies as it could carry. The Fairwind darted for the surface while the fleets engaged one another up in space. As Farfalla's reinforcements hauled ass to the surface, the Army of Light was being enveloped. Jedi Knight Kiel Charney led the defense, but the situation soon became desperate as the Sith Lord used the advantages provided by their speeders to pick off the Jedi. When they were both Jedi, Charney and Githany had been lovers, but were forced to stop their relationship once it was discovered by their master. While Charney agreed to stop their relationship, Githany refused to do so and fled the Jedi defecting to the Sith. Charney almost followed Githany, but decided to remain in the Order after receiving counsel from Master Farfalla. During Sixth Rishon, Charney shot down Githany's spear, forcing them into a duel. Charney used his trusty lightsaber while Giffney used a light whip. We almost made it through the entire Old Republic, but we finally got our light whip here at the end. If you're wondering, the light whip is exactly what it sounds like, a lightsaber hill that emitted a beam of energy, except instead of being solid like a sword, the beam of energy is wavy and bendable like a whip. In a universe of ridiculous things, it's one of the most utterly ridiculous things of all. Charney and Githany dueled, but the Jedi could not bring himself to kill his former lover as their battle continued. By this point, Tomcat and Bug made their way through the chaos and found the pair dueling. Tomcat had discarded the suspicions of his homeworld and now went by his real name, Derivit. The teenager had lost all respect for the Jedi, who he saw as weak and unfit for the carnage of war. When Derivit saw kill Charney give Githany another chance, he viewed it as more weakness. Eventually, Githany severed Charney's arm, and Derivit saw his time to defect from the weak Jedi, and did so by beheading the legendary Jedi kill Charney. However, the tables turned on the Brotherhood immediately when Valentin Varkala, 300 Jedi, and a bunch of Republic soldiers landed, launching a ferocious counterattack. Valentine Farfalla refused to allow the Army of Light to fall. It would betray his personal honor and the Jedi Code. He may have been a vainglorious pretty boy and a dandy who was handed everything as an inheritance, but he was also brave to the point of recklessness and a hell of a leader. When Farfalla's contingent landed, it was early the next morning after the Force Storm ritual lasted through most of the night. The arrival of reinforcements by air forced the Brotherhood off their speeders and onto the ground. Evening the fight, the half-human, half-Bothan Farfalla personally led the counterattack, and they slaughtered the Brotherhood of Darkness before many could retreat. Two minutes ago, Kiel Charney had just fallen in battle, and Lord Hoth was pinned down on another front. Victory on Rusan and control of the galaxy was within Lord Khan's reach. Just wipe out a few dozen more Jedi, mop up the troops, and then make for Coruscant. In this way, Skir Khan came the closest of any Sith to controlling the galaxy until Palpatine. 
But the arrival of fresh troops for the Army of Light made possible by Darth Bane's betrayal spelled doom for the Brotherhood. The arrival of hundreds of new Jedi and other soldiers revitalized the Army of Light, rallying their flagging morale. Whatever thin personnel advantages the Sith had before Six Rusan evaporated as the Jedi counterattacked. The Sith Lords and their troopers were cut down before they even knew what happened. In a matter of moments, the Brotherhood's sure victory was dashed, becoming a rout and then a chaotic retreat to the Sith camp. Githany, her new apprentice, Darovit, Khan, Kopex, and a few others fled on speeders, but many of their comrades were killed or surrendered. The blockade remained as Admiral Nairos pulled her forces back quickly after realizing the error, but Sixersan was over and the Jedi had won. A combination of Bane's betrayal and Farfalla's bravery and quick thinking sealed the victory for the Army of Light. The Old Republic would stand for one more night. Fallout. But despite the elation most of his troops felt, Lord Hoth was still in the throes of grief over the loss of his oldest and closest friend, Pernicar. After the battle, Hoth confronted and blamed Farfalla for the death of Pernicar, Charney, and the others who died before the cavalry arrived. Lord Hoth didn't mean it, he was grieving for his friend, and, and dealing with the mental weight of a decade of warfare, still, Valentine Farfalla was a proud man and feared that Hoth's actions were evidence of his fall to the dark side after the death of Pernicar and escalation of Hoth's personal rivalry with Lord Khan. The members of the Army of Light were confused and began to take sides between Hoth and Farfalla, immediately splitting their camp in two. Farfalla returned to the Fairwind, taking his reinforcements with him, and vowed not to help Lord Hoth for, their, for this grievous insult. At this point, it was nightfall again, and everyone knew the final battle would occur the next day. Farfalla and his troops should have been showered with praise for saving the Old Republic, not berated by an old man who was too far gone. All this factionalism wouldn't have been such a huge deal if the Brotherhood had been eradicated in Six Rusan, but they were not. They had done something stupid to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, but the Sith were not defeated. From what we can tell, the Army of Light and Brotherhood of Darkness now stand at roughly equal strength following Six Rusan. In total, the Army of Light had a few hundred Jedi leaders and a few thousand conventional soldiers, but their ranks are completely split by the rift between Hoth and Farfalla. The Brotherhood of Darkness, meanwhile, has a few hundred Sith leaders and a few thousand conventional soldiers, and they've got their own problems too. Thought Bomb. Back at the Sith camp. The Brotherhood were left to question what had happened and how they had lost such a sure victory. It didn't take long for them to find an answer. Darth Bane was waiting when Lord Khan arrived back at his tent and rather flippantly announced that he had betrayed the Brotherhood by ordering the fleet to break their blockade. At this news, Lord Khan finally broke down, losing all hope for his cause. In his tent, Khan didn't attack Bane or even lash out. He just lost all hope and began crying. It's almost enough to make you feel sorry for him. Almost. Khan is definitely an evil guy, but he's been fighting the light and darkness war for ten years using a coalition he built through conquest and might. 
Then, two years ago, some bald 20-something dumbass shows up on Korriban and begins undoing everything Khan had worked for after reading a few dusty manuscripts and finding an old holocron. Who the fuck converts to a religion and then leads a reformation of that religion two years later? But again, Khan simply despaired for his chances, at least until Bane reminded him of the thought bomb. Remember that Bane sent Khan the thought bomb schematics before he left Rakata Prime, hoping Khan would use it and wipe out the Brotherhood in the process. The thought bomb is a super weapon created by an ancient Sith ritual, which focuses the willpower of many Sith Lords to unleash the full power of the dark side. Upon detonation, the thought bomb would eradicate the physical bodies of every force-sensitive being within the blast radius before being trapped before trapping their souls in an iridescent floating silver orb. The souls would remain in perpetual torment within the orb until freed by a force-sensitive individual. It's clear from the outset that there was never any chance that members of the Brotherhood would survive the detonation of the Thought Bomb, but Khan believed it all the same. Darth Bane fueled this idea, and now that Khan was literally hopeless, he agreed to deploy the Thought Bomb superweapon, believing it would destroy the Army of Light, but not the Brotherhood of Darkness. Dark Knight of the Soul. After agreeing to use the Thought Bomb, Lord Khan then played what he believed to be his trump card. For years, Khan had kept the Brotherhood in line by his use of mind tricks and mental manipulation. Now, in his final Dark Knight of the Soul, Khan reached for his old, reliable means of getting his way, using a mind trick on Bane to convince him that the other Sith distrusted him and believed him unfit to rule. Khan assumed that this would get Bane out of his hair permanently, after all, when, after all, when had one of his mind tricks failed before? Unbeknownst to Khan, his powers of mental persuasion had been waning in recent years. Both Kopex and Githney could resist Khan's mind tricks, and Darth Bane had more resolve than both of them put together. Bane was not some weak-minded, petty Sith Lord, but Khan was too far gone and too assured of his own destiny to see that. Bane allowed Khan to believe that the mind trick worked and abandoned the Sith camp in the wee hours of the morning, making for his ship on foot. Meanwhile, in the Jedi camp, Lord Hoth had gone to sleep depressed after his argument with Valentin Farfalla. If the Army of Light was still divided by the morning, the Brotherhood could easily rout them both. As, Han slept, uh, as Hoth slept, the Force Ghost of Pernikar appeared and told his old friend not to give up hope and to mend the situation with Farfalla, lest the Jedi be destroyed and the Republic along with it. Lord Hoth awoke before daybreak and sent a diplomatic envoy to Farfalla, apologizing for letting his grief and foolish pride get the better of him. Valentin Farfalla was already awake and fretting about tactics when the messenger arrived. By the time the sun rose over Rusan the next morning, the Army of Light was united once again. As a sign of respect, Valentin Farfalla was given overall command of the Army of Light for the upcoming 7th Battle of Rusan, where he would lead the vanguard and Lord Hoth would lead the rearguard. Elsewhere, while Darth Bane was walking to his ship, he felt a tremor in the force when someone in the vicinity fully tapped into the dark side. Intrigued, Bane set off walking towards the source of this dark power. Character Profile 
Darth Zana, a.k.a. Rain. The girl who would grow to become Darth Zana was born in 1010 BBY on Samarov Rit, where she was given the nickname Rain. Since we know nothing about Zana's life before meeting her on Samarov Rit, we will introduce the future of the Dark Lord Sith via her experiences during and after the Sixth Battle of Rusan. This is all taken from Jedi vs. Sith, but isn't contradicted by a path of destruction, so it should still be fine. After arriving on Rusan earlier, Rain's transport ship was damaged and crash-landed on the surface. During the descent, Rain fell from the ship and was presumed dead by her cousins. However, Rain survived when she landed on the back of a bouncer named La. Bouncers were the floating orbs covered in green fur that could communicate telepathically with other species. Law and Rain immediately became friends and wandered the surrounding area. A short time later, Sixrusan began, and the Sith Force Storm utterly decimated everything in its path. While walking through a forest, Rain and Law were caught in the Force Storm and nearly killed, but were saved when Rain instinctively used the Force to create a bubble and shield them. Rain really was strong in the Force. After this, Law prophesied that Rain would become a powerful dark Jedi in the future. Bouncers were gifted with abilities of farsight, and Law's prophecy dismayed Rain. Not wanting to be a Sith, Rain attempted to commit suicide by jumping off a cliffside, but then stopped herself with the Force and climbed back up, realizing her destiny was not bound by Law's prediction. As they continued on, the effects of war became apparent as the entire countryside burned and Bouncers died. In these apocalyptic conditions, the Bouncers began transmitting horrifying images telepathically, causing soldiers to panic. We'll catch up with Rain and Law following the events of Sixersan. After Sixersan ended, the Jedi sent out two knights to put the Bouncers out of their misery and stop the panic from spreading. Law was spotted and killed by the two Jedi hunters before Rain could intervene. In her anger and rage, Rain called upon the dark side of the Force, breaking the necks of both Jedi in an instant. For hours, Rain lay sobbing on the body of her dead friend, Law. Master and Apprentice, at some point in the morning on the final day of the Old Republic, Darth Bane found the source of the dark disturbance he felt after several hours of searching. It's unclear when exactly this meeting took place, whether before or after Seven Through Song, but we'll put it here because either way they aren't within the blast radius of the Thought Bomb, so the timing doesn't matter. What the Dark Lord of the Sith saw shocked him. A ten-year-old girl with curly red hair sitting on top of a dead bouncer surrounded by two dead Jedi and devastation of Rusan. A surprise to be sure, but was it a welcome one? Bane was intrigued as the child did not fear him. Rain arrived on Rusan as a child, but her experiences there changed her forever. The horrors of war and death of her friend La robbed Rain of the youthful innocence she displayed on Samar Rit. Bane introduced himself, and Rain initially replied with her nickname, but realized her superstition was a childish nuisance and gave her birth name Zana. She was lost all alone in the universe, and Bane offered to help because he saw potential in the girl. Her power in the Force was evident, and her pure act of revenge against the Jedi tapped tapped directly into the dark side of the Force. 
It was so powerful that both Jedi were helpless to defend themselves, and Bane felt it from kilometers away. So Bane asked Zana if she wanted to become his apprentice, but warned it would involve murder and tapping into her deepest emotion. Zana replied that she was already a murderer after killing the Jedi without compunction. She told him she had no formal training in the Force and knew nothing of the dark side but was willing to learn. Bane, Darth Bane sensed truth in the girl's words and agreed to take her on as his Sith apprentice, pending one final test we will get to momentarily. Just like that, Bane had solved the issue of finding a new Sith apprentice for his rule of two before he even left Rusan. The new master and apprentice then headed back in the direction of the Sith camp to recover any intel on the ancient Sith or anything of value. Secret orders have to take what they can get after all. The Seventh Battle of Rusan. Morning dawned, and each side prepared for the battle that simultaneously marked the ends of the New Sith Wars, the Light and Darkness War, the Brotherhood of Darkness, Khan's burgeoning Sith Empire, and the Old Republic. Five things ending in one battle. You would think such a momentous occasion would merit a sprawling battle that takes place on the planet and in space, building toward a frenetic conclusion with duels and firefights. But you'd be wrong. The seventh battle of Rusan is none of those things. It's barely even a battle as less than a thousand people will die. Instead, Khan has pulled all his remaining Sith Lords back into a series of caves where he plans to lure the Jedi before detonating the Thought Bomb. The Brotherhood's conventional forces were arrayed in front of the cave system, for their part, the Army of Light drew up in a wedge formation with Valentine Farfalla leading and Lord Hoth bringing up the rear guard. In space above, the stage was also set for the final confrontation between the opposing fleets. Rusan is still blockaded, but the Army of Light fleet is going to attempt to smash the Brotherhood up against the planet, giving them no place to go. Only one side was making it out of the battle alive, and they would control the fate of the galaxy. As they marched, members of the Army of Light prepared to face the full might of the Brotherhood in what was sure to be a battle for the ages. But they were in a, for a shock as the Seventh Battle of Rusan began. As the Army of Light came upon the Brotherhood, they easily broke through the Sith front lines, and a few minutes of intense fighting ensued. During that time, Lord Kopex was captured and agreed to tell the Jedi of Khan's plans if they granted him an honorable death in a lightsaber duel. Master Farfala immediately agreed, and the two clasped sabers, the only lightsaber duel of Seventh Rusan. It was over quickly. Despite being a formidable warrior, age and weight had finally caught up with Lord Kopex, as they do to so many of us. The formality completed, Kopex revealed Khan's plan to use the Thought Bomb, which he derided as a suicidal folly. Kopex got the death he wanted, but now Hoth and Farfala had a much bigger problem. Farfala immediately pulled the Army of Light back to clear the area around the caves while the remaining Brotherhood troops surrendered en masse. Why would they want to stand there and get slaughtered while their generals waited in a cave? 
In less than an hour, the Brotherhood's entire army, army had been killed or capitulated, and all that was remaining were, were the Sith Lords in the cave and the possibility of a thought bomb. Lord Hoth and Master Farkla were both smart enough to know that being near that being near it would mean certain doom, but Lord Khan refused to surrender. The remaining members of the Brotherhood, a couple of hundred Sith Lords, were concentrating their energy through Khan to create the Thought Bomb. Lord Khan had used all his power to bind the remaining Sith Lords to his will, and together in the Dark and Cave system, the Thought Bomb was made manifest and is now our 33rd and final superweapon of the show. But... Lord Kopex wasn't the only Sith to break free of Khan's hold, as Githany came to her senses during the ritual and was able to sneak away with Derivant. Githany and Derivant attempted to make their way to an exit, but the cave system was dark and confusing and they got lost. Outside the caves, Hoth and Farfalla de debated their next moves. Since Khan wouldn't surrender, the Jedi would have to go force the issue and confront him in the caves, with no way of knowing how how big a thought bomb they cre had been created, the Jedi feared it could engulf the whole planet, so the army of light began retreating even further. From there, Farfalla and Hoth differed in their approaches to the situation. Farfalla favored waiting the Sith out, it's not like they could stay in the caves permanently, but Hoth wanted to confront Khan directly and either force him to surrender or stop the thought bomb from being detonated. Farfalla cautioned that the plan would result in certain death, but Hoth, but Hoth was prepared to face that. Lord Hoth gathered 100 Jedi with him in case it did come to a fight, and all willingly accepted the risk of death on the off chance that Khan could be stopped. The Army of Light and all of their Sith prisoners retreated far away, loading in every working ship they could, they could find to flee Rusan. With everyone ready to evacuate, Farfalla bid farewell to Hoth and his 100 brave comrades and boarded the Fairwind. Seventh Rusan ends. Before entering the cave, Lord Hoth formally designated command of the Army of Light to Valentine Farfalla, making him the overall commander-in-chief both the Republic military and the Jedi. With all the ships loaded, the Fairwind departed Rusan, leaving a ragged patchwork fleet. They sought to crush the Brotherhood of Darkness fleet, which had already been engaged by the Army of Light's fleet. Admiral Nairos did her best, but her fleet was caught in between Farfalla's approaching armada and an Army of Light fleet that deployed additional ships Master Farfalla had gained on his expedition for reinforcements. Together, these two groups crushed the Sith fleet between them, killing or capturing every fighter. After the quick space battle, the entire Brotherhood military was either dead or in the Army of Light's custody, except for the couple hundred Sith Lords waiting with Lord Khan in the caves. At long last, Lord Hoth and his hundred Jedi ventured forth into the cave system to compromise the Brotherhood and the Sith to a permanent end. Further in, Lord Hoth came upon Lord Khan seated on a throne surrounded by his remaining Sith Lords. While this happened, Githany and Darovit were trying to make their way through the back entrance to the caves, where they met an army of light squad looking for runaway Sith. Githany and Darovit engaged the group, which contained Darovit's cousin Bug, now going by his real name, Hardin. Githany killed the others, while the two cousins dueled with lightsabers, but Darovit was ultimately unable to kill his own kin, 
even after Githany took Hardin's leg off with her light web. Seeing his cousin in agony brought Darova around and he opted to stay with the badly injured Hardin while Githany cursed her student for slowing her down. At that moment, back in the cave system, Hoth attempted to parlay with his old foe, but Khan would have none of it. The formalities dispensed with, Hoth and his Jedi charged the Brotherhood, and Khan detonated the thought bomb with a clap of his hands. In the blink of an eye, every Force-sensitive in the surrounding area was blasted into nothingness, and their souls were trapped in a silver orb in the caves on Rusan. With that, both Seventh Rusan and Path of Destruction come to an end. Darth Bane Rule of Two, written by Drew Karpishian and published in 2007. The detonation of the Thought Bomb serves as the conclusion to Darth Bane Path of Destruction. Originally, Path of Destruction was intended to be a standalone novel that explained how Bane became the sole surviving Sith, but the novel was such a success that Karpishian was retained to write Rule of Two. Somehow, Rule of Two was written, edited, marketed, and published within a five-month span, an almost unheard-of turnaround for a modern novel. Though Carpician has a history of writing very quickly, something he was known for while writing Knights of the Old Republic with Bioware. Rule of Two picks up right where the story left off in 1000 BBY before jumping for 10 years to 990 BBY. While it principally focuses on Bane and Zana, the larger galactic events occur in the background, such as the implementation of the Rusan Reformations. The Reformations are incredibly important as they serve as a plot device used to remake the Galactic Republic from the edifice of the Old Republic. It's how we get from the Jedi having total martial and political rule over the galaxy to the Republic we see in the prequels. It's also how we explain uh, the statements in Attack of the Clones about the Republic being 1,000 years old, with Obi-Wan's statement about the Jedi protecting the Republic for some 25,000 years in A New Hope. Remember all that meta we went into in Episode 9 about George Lucas retcons and the development of the new Sith Wars? The Rusan Reformations are the culmination of all that and are what serve to make it work within the universe. Effectively, the Republic gets a new constitution and a new birthday, and we successfully retcon away any questions about the age of the Republic. Because of their importance, we will spend the rest of this episode focusing on the immediate aftermath of Seventh Rusan, the Rusan Reformations, and the death of our beloved Old Republic. The stuff about the aftermath comes from Rule of Two's prologue, but the rest is pulled from different parts of the novel and other sources as well. We will then fill in any gaps and pick up the story rule two next time. Survivors. When Khan detonated the thought bomb, every force sensitive in the cave system was killed, their corporeal bodies obliterated in an instant. Lord Khan, the Sith Lord surrounding him, all hundred members of the Army of Light, and Lord Hoth were vaporized. Their souls were absorbed into a silver iridescent orb where they would remain in torment for... 1,005 years until being freed by Kyle Katarn during the events of Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2. Githany and Hardin were both killed in the detonation, as well as they hadn't gotten outside the blast radius, yet Duravit survived somehow. The thought bomb killed hundreds of powerful Force users, but Duravit survived thanks in part to the fact that he was only marginally Force-sensitive. 
Daravid's Force sensitivity was actually a source of contention for a few years as Jedi vs. Sith stated that he survived the Thought Bomb because he wasn't Force sensitive and had just piggybacked off his Force bond with Zana. But that causes many problems, so it was retconned in Path of Destruction, where Daravid is said to have been only marginally Force-sensitive and was spared from the Thought Bomb because of the fact that that fact and his distance from the detonation. While Daravid survived the Thought Bomb in the caves, the lone Sith survivors made their way to the Sith camp. There, they found a few mercenaries who had served the Brotherhood but betrayed them, and now came to loot anything they could find. Enraged, Darth Bane killed four of them while two were allowed to escape to spread lies and fabrications about possible Sith survivors, something Bane viewed as essential to overthrowing the Jedi. Seems like he's taken a pretty nonchalant attitude to OPSEC, but what do we know? Bane and the future Darth Zana then looted the Sith camp themselves, finding an ancient scroll that mentioned the Sith Lord Freedon Nad and the planet Onderon. The scroll, which had belonged to Cordris, also had several handwritten numbers in the margins, which Bane later discerned to be bank account numbers. Cordris had amassed a secret fortune that Darth Bane would use to fund his efforts to perpetrate, perpetuate the Sith. Before departing, Bane took Zana to the cave system where Khan had detonated the Thought Bomb, finding only a massive floating silver orb that had held the souls of all who had perished within the cave. Bane briefly explained some of the doctrines from the Rule of Two and how the Brotherhood had strayed from true Sith teachings. However, Bane and Zana were discovered by Derivit as he was drawn to the orb via the Force. Initially, Derivit was overjoyed because he had believed his cousin was dead since before Six through Son. But after the burst, after the burst of joy, Derivit realized that Bane was a Sith and drew his lightsaber to protect his younger cousin. Bane prepared to kill the boy, but Zana intervened, calling upon the dark side of the Force and causing Derivit's blade hand to explode, but sparing his life for final small mercy before becoming a real Sith. Bane and Zana then made their way out of the cave, leaving a horrified and badly injured Derivit alive with the remnants of the Thought Bomb. When asked for an explanation by Bane, Zana said that there was no purpose in killing Derivit as he was all alone on Rusan and had already turned his back on the Jedi. Bane chalked this up to Zana being new to the Sith, but didn't make another effort to kill Derivit himself. They aren't even off Rusan yet, and the Order of the Sith Lords already has a problem because of its lax approach to OPSEC. They already left two mercs and Derivit alive, and as we're about to see, one of the keys to Bane's plan is that the Jedi believe the Sith were totally destroyed at the end of Seventh Rusan. This won't be an issue for a while, as Derivit will be stranded on Rusan for the next ten years, but the mercs weren't. In the meantime, Darth Bane went to his ship and decided to give Zana one final test before officially naming her his Sith Apprentice. He instructed his young student to make her way to Onderon within ten standard days. When Bane asked how she was supposed to, or when Zana asked how she was supposed to do this, Bane replied, quote, You are the chosen one, the anointed heir to the legacy of our order. You will find a way. End quote. With that, Darth Bane left his 10-year-old apprentice alone on Rusan to make her way to Onderon, which is where we will leave them for now. Star Wars just really loves telling 10-year-olds they're the chosen ones. All right, 
The Jedi Reign, the seventh battle of Rusan, saw the end of organized resistance against the political autonomy of the Republic and its right to rule. As far as the Jedi knew, it also marked the total destruction of the Sith, both as a political entity and as an order of Force users serving the dark side. For the first time since the new Sith Wars began, in 2000 BBY, the Republic was the only standing government in the known galaxy. 1,000 years of near-continuous warfare was finally over. The entirety of the Brotherhood of Darkness was dead or captured, including their fleet. There were no remote holdouts or remaining Sith warlords after Skir Khan consolidated power following his conquest of the feudal Sith territories in 1010. When he began the Light and Darkness War in that same year, he did so with more than 20,000 Sith Lords, basically every Sith Lord still living in the galaxy. A decade later, the Light and Darkness War was over and all those Sith were dead. Khan had seen to that when he detonated the Thought Bomb, which the remaining Jedi felt as a disturbance in the Force. The Sith were dead and gone as far as the Jedi were concerned, and they had good reason to believe that. For all the problems Jedi had, it is really hard to fault them for letting two Sith escape, and it was definitely unforeseeable that they would start a secret order that would last for a thousand years and culminate in the destruction of the Jedi. So the Sith were believed extinct, and the next question for the Jedi became, now what? Recall that the Jedi Order unwillingly held all political and military authority in the galaxy for centuries, with Jedi Master serving as Supreme Chancellor for nearly 500 years. The Jedi had held total command over the entire Republic military for centuries and took formal control of it when Lord Hoth created the Army of Light. Then there was the question of the Jedi Lords who held feudal claims to their baronial sectors. Following 7th Rusan in 1000 BBY, the Jedi stood alone atop the galaxy. They controlled the Senate and the courts and the military. At this point, Valentine Farfalla holds more power by virtue of his position than anyone in the history of the galaxy until Palpatine. The Rusan Reformations Many Jedi, including Farfalla, could see that the situation was untenable. Recall that last episode we surveyed the situation for both the Old Republic and Jedi just before the Light and Darkness War began, and we found that both were fucked. The Jedi, because they couldn't bear the brunt of keeping the Republic afloat much longer, there simply weren't enough Jedi to do that. If the status quo remained unchanged, the Jedi would have either... If the status quo remained unchanged, the Jedi would have either totally broken under the weight or turned into a despotic military dictatorship. The Old Republic was fucked because the Jedi couldn't prop it up any longer and it would either die or be violently overthrown if the current situation, if the current situation continued. The Jedi held too much political autonomy and too much power and they knew it, so they began scaling back. So they began scaling back what they initially could. With the Sith, New Sith Wars crisis over, a Jedi stepped down as Supreme Chancellor and Tarsus Valorum was elected to the position. This marked the first time in more than 450 years that the Supreme Chancellorship was held by a non-Jedi. We will do canon updates for the Rusan Reformations and Valorum next episode. Following this election, Valorum met Valentin Farfalla and the two agreed that a change had to be made. 
The Supreme Chancellor held too much authority, the Jedi acted as frontier feudal lords, and what the hell were they going to do with three times the territory that they just regained? Some of those systems hadn't been under Republic jurisdiction in close to 1,000 years, and the Republic, as currently constituted, was ill-equipped to govern or protect most of them. Internally, the Old Republic was a mess, too, since there had been no reset of the government since its founding in 25,053 BBY. When new territory was discovered or settled, it was just added to the existing map. The, settled, the sectors had never been rationally organized, and there were now millions of them. During his meeting with Garfala, Valorum introduced what he called the Rusan Reformations, a massive platform that would radically remake the Republic. The Supreme Chancellor the Supreme Chancellor would be significantly the Supreme Chancellor's power would be significantly reduced. The Senate would once more serve as a somewhat representative assembly, and the Jedi Order would go back to being the defenders of peace and justice in the galaxy. The Rusan Reformations were nearly a fait accompli, as Valorum still held such vast power through his role as Supreme Chancellor and the Senate had been an impotent social club for so long. Valorum could make whatever decision he saw fit, and the Republic, such as it was, would have gone along with it. But Tarsus Valorum badly needed buy-in from the Jedi. Even without this supreme chancellorship, the Jedi still held untold political capital as, they, as the vaunted saviors of the Republic, and they controlled all military forces in the galaxy. The Republic military fell under the auspices of the Jedi sometime after 1466 BBY and were formerly consolidated under the Army of Light in 1010. When the Jedi High Council also placed the entire order under the Ars under the control of the Army of Light later that year, that placed all official military resources under the Army's command. Following the death of Lord Hoth at Seventh Rusan, that command fell to Master Farfala, who now held all the cards. While the half-human, half-Bothan hybrid agreed that the Jedi needed less power, Valorum's reforms gave him pause. The Jedi had held military ranks over the Republic military for a thousand years, and many of them had grown accustomed to being feudal lords. But Valorum was insistent. Not only did the Jedi need to renounce their military ranks, they also needed to disavow all feudal holdings and political titles. The Jedi had too much power and it had to be broken, but the Jedi had to willingly give it up, not have it taken from them by force. Valorum's other reforms were just as wide-ranging. He wanted to abolish the Republic military to stop any individual from gaining too much power. He wanted to re-establish Republic control over its old territories and rationalize the whole map, creating 1,024 sectors that each received one senator. He wanted to diffuse power away from the Supreme Chancellor, rebuild the judicial branch, and decentralize power held by the core worlds. Of course, the Supreme Chancellor also retained the authority to create special delegations who could appear before the Senate that would be granted to entities like the Trade Federation. Because we can't let those changes be too good, then there would be nothing to topple in the prequels. In the end, Valentin Barfala allowed himself to be convinced, though it's not like he had many options. 
Preserving the status quo meant that the Jedi would have to reassert, would have to assert their own palace coup, overthrow Tarsus Belorum, and turn the Republic into a military dictatorship. Rebuilding the Republic meant the Rusan reformations or something equally as ambitious. Not the type to launch a coup and understanding that the Jedi shouldn't be in that business, Farfalla agreed to the Rusan reformations. He may have been an aristocratic swine who, would always, who always wore a circlet like he was royalty, but he also had absolute power within his grasp and didn't even consider taking it for himself. Getting the rest of the Jedi to agree would be a monumental diplomatic undertaking, however. The Rusan Reformations would also remake the Jedi Order. Younglings were to be found and begin training as close to birth as possible. The prohibition against the Jedi taking on more than one apprentice would be enforced. The Jedi would be placed under the oversight of the Senate, and training would be centralized on Coruscant. These rules would hopefully stop another Jedi student from falling to the dark side and wrecking the galaxy once again. More importantly, the Army of Light would be completely disbanded, including the entire Republic military, and the Jedi would cease holding formal military command or ranks. The Republic military would be fully disbanded for the first time since the Republic's founding. Instead, the, the military instead the military would be reorganized into the judicial forces and the Jedi Order would return to serve as peacekeepers and defenders serving the galaxy as a whole. To stop the judicial forces from becoming a military arm, they would be divided into heavily decentralized task forces with different duties such as patrolling, patrolling the frontiers and stopping localized conflicts. Local planetary defense forces would be used to protect sectors on a day-to-day -day basis. Finally, the Rusan reformations would also require the first galactic calendar reset in Republic history, setting the beginning, setting the beginning of the new year zero, which we would come to know as 1000 BBY, to the date of 7th Rusan. In order for the Rusan reformations to work, the old, the old Republic had to die, both literally and figuratively. The Old Republic Ends after Tarsus Valorum and Valentine Farfalla reached an agreement on the Rusan Reformations, they went to ensure its implementation. For Valorum, that meant setting up committees to finalize the details, such as drawing up the sectors, creating laws to govern it, and the like. Valorum's job was easy. He had the money and still had the power of his office behind him. Farfalla, on the other hand, had a tough sell to make. Convincing the Jedi that they needed less power wasn't an issue. Even the greenest Padawan in the Order could see that. Hell, convincing most to give up their feudal titles wasn't a problem, as many Jedi saw them as anathema to the Jedi Code. No, the problem for Farfalla lay in getting the Jedi to actually trust that a Republic would work. It seemed counterintuitive to submit to a new galactic senate that didn't yet exist when they had to step in and run the current version nearly 500 years ago. It had been so long since the Republic was useful that there wasn't a single being alive who could remember what a good version of the body even looked like, which fair relatable. But as we know from his recruitment of the 300 recalcitrant Jedi before Six Rusan, Farfalla was a shrewd diplomat. He was aided by Johann Otton, who became Farfalla's Padawan following the death of Lord Hoth. 
Farfla promoted his student to the rank of Jedi Knight, and the two set about convincing, cajoling, and occasionally strong-arming the Jedi into agreeing to the Rusan Reformations. Small separatist groups opposed the reforms, and the resurgent republic began to pop up across the galaxy. But they could do little to stop the changes at this point. The Republic Dark Age was finally over. As a final symbolic act, Valentine Farfalla resigned his title of Commander-in-Chief, simultaneously dissolving the Army of Light and the Republic military. With this, the Rusan Reformations were approved in their entirety, and the Republic Measures and Standards Bureau officially reset the Galactic Standard Calendar to zero. After 24,053 years, the Old Republic was dead. But... That's not the end of our narrative just yet. We can't very well leave you hanging with the Darth Bane trilogy unfinished. We still have to cover most of Darth Bane Rule of Two and then wrap up with Darth Bane Dynasty of Evil, both of which we will finish as our Old Republic narrative ends in episode 9.4. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we'll see Darth Bane perpetuate the Order of the Sith Lords, the rise of Darth Zana, and the conclusion of our narrative. You can follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AtherTenKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.